This morning, we are going to jump right into Ephesians. We are going to continue to explore Ephesians this morning. This is our series called Exploring Ephesians. And we are actually at a turning point in the book of Ephesians. So what happens here is there's a transition. We're at the end of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul marks kind of the closing of this first half of Ephesians. And then what he does is he begins in chapter 4, the second half. So the, the first half was predominantly doctrinal and focused on kind of this idea of internal belief and internal heart transformation. If you haven't had a chance to to listen to the sermons on that, you can go to our website and click on the podcast and you'll be able to hear um, Pastor Mark and and those sermons that of chapters 1 through 3, which are incredibly important in order for us to help us understand what chapter 4 is all about. Okay, So, this whole idea of internal heart transformation that he talked about is absolutely essential and it must come first. But now in chapter 4, Paul starts to show in practical detail how the beliefs and the internal transformation will display itself on the outside in our practices and in our actions. The external display of this inward change is revealed both in the individual life and in the corporate body in the church. And so the text we're going to read this morning, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesians. And so our focus today is going to be the church at Portview and the church as a whole um, as well. However, we have to understand this. A church is simply made up of people, right? So the church reflects the corporate spiritual health of the individuals who make it up, right? And this is absolutely essential to understand what we're going to be talking about today. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has kind of set the table. He has set before the church in Ephesus the great purpose of God in Christ for his church. He has prayed that they may know the wonder of his plan, his love, his power, and every spiritual blessing that he offers. But now in these remaining chapters, he's going to write about the quality and the kind of life that is required of them corporately as the church, which is what we're going to be looking at today. So let's see how Paul begins um, chapter 4. So grab your Bibles, and we are going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Have you guys enjoyed this time of going through Ephesians? It's incredibly powerful. So Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3, say this. It says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, Paul clearly intended for this transition to take place from end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. And the reason that we know that is the word therefore. Right from the very first word he says therefore. And this word therefore is a conjunction which leads us on and kind of points us to the life we are to live in light of the truths that we have considered in chapters 1 through 3. So Paul writes the first three chapters about the believer's calling, and beginning in chapter 4, he writes three chapters about their walk. You see the distinction there? This is what we want to spend some time on this morning. And here is what the Apostle Paul has been trying to communicate to the church in Ephesus so far through Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3, and then the beginning of 4. 
We could sum it up like this. Talking about transformed people, united under the rule of Christ, work together to establish His kingdom through the power of the Spirit. So transformed people, right? Remember we started with that internal heart change. Transformed people, united under the rule of Christ, work together to establish His kingdom on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, this internal transformation only happens through the Spirit's power, right? All of us who have been transformed are in the process of being transformed. Understand that it's not just me becoming better, but it's actually God the Holy Spirit working in my heart, in my mind, to be able to transform my thinking, transform my heart into Christ-likeness. And that only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And those individuals then unite as the church for what? To establish the kingdom of God here on earth, right? That thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul is simply using a strategy here in, in Ephesians that we use all the time as parents. I have uh, two, two young daughters. I, my oldest is a son and then two young daughters. Elena is six. Aubrey is three. They share a bed. They have bunk beds. And sometimes at night... The girls will say, we'll be saying goodnight to them, I prayed with them, and said, Dad, I'm scared. And Aubrey just learned how to say that from her sister. Like, Aubrey, she didn't know. She was like one, two, you know, just learning how to talk, and she'd repeat after Elena, I'm scared. She didn't even know what scared meant initially, but now they're both scared sometimes, you know. <laughs> so, and, you know, as a dad, you can't just say, well, don't be scared and slam the door. You know, um, you, you know, you might have to give them a little more than that. Sometimes we may, we may want to, but um, you, you kind of have to lay it out for them. So, so a lot of times, you know, I'll usually ask them questions or, you know, something like this. So maybe, how, how big is our God? How strong is God? And be like, oh, you know, God is really strong. Is he the strongest? He is. You know, God's the strongest one around. How, how much does God love you? Well, God loves me, you know, so much. If you're a follower of Jesus, where does God live? You know, God lives in my heart. Do you believe God loves you and wants to protect you? Yeah, He does. You know, and so we go through kind of this whole theological truth telling, just in an age-appropriate way, right? And so you, you almost have to remind them of those truths, and then and then you go to a transition and say, you know what? Since God loves us that much, since since He's so powerful, since He wants to protect us, since since all that is true, then you know what? You don't have to be afraid at night. You know, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but it's it's a process that we that we use to explain things, don't we, parents? I mean, we use it all the time. And so, um, in fact, they say, not only do you not have to be afraid at night, but you can actually fall asleep with a smile on your face because of the you're under the protection of God, right? And so... That's, that's pretty much what Paul's doing here, just not to a three-year-old and a six-year-old girl. But he's spelling out theologically in chapters 1 through 3 the beliefs then. And then in chapter 4 he explains, well then here's what should happen. Here's how it should look. And so dads and moms, make sure you keep up explaining things to your kids. It's, it's worth the conversations. You have to explain the why. You can't just say, well don't be scared and slam the door. Okay? You have to be able to spend some time and figure it out, maybe wrestle with it yourself and say, why? And make sure that we tell our kids that. That's incredibly important. 
Um, I'll let you know when they're 16 if they're still scared at night. But I think that's the process that God wants us to use. So Paul goes on in verse 1 of chapter 4 to implore the church of Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul says this because he knows that good theology without action is powerless. In fact, James says, faith without works is dead, right? Theology on its own doesn't change lives. Have you ever thought about that? Theology on its own doesn't change lives. But the opposite is also true. Nice actions without godly motivation and right theology are just self-motivated, feel-good acts that don't change the heart, right? There's a lot of great causes out there. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good things. But that's actions. What, what, what God is trying to do in our lives is change our heart and have our actions reflect what's going on in our heart. So, how is it supposed to be? Well, good theology and right thinking combined with purposeful action, powered by the Holy Spirit, changes lives. And everyone who went through Trek said, Amen, right? Because that's, that's the process, right? And so, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings that heart change. Genuine heart change over time should then be reflected in our actions, shouldn't it? If not, then Paul would say, you're not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. The reason Paul is imploring or strongly encouraging us here is because without the worthy walking of the people of the church of Ephesus, there would be no chance for the church itself to walk in a manner worthy of the calling either, right? Because remember, a church is just made up of the individuals in it. The individuals in it aren't walking in a manner worthy of the calling, then the church made up of those individuals won't either. Does that make sense? So, he knew this. Unchanged, disobedient people cannot come together to create a transformed, obedient church. Paul knew that. In fact, he didn't just communicate this to the church in Ephesus. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, he actually says a very similar thing there. He says, "...so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, he said, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When, when you consider this, it makes sense though, doesn't it? An inward transformation would eventually reveal a change in an outward action. And when united in, in the Spirit as the church, the church becomes the main vehicle in which establishes God's kingdom here on earth. And this united church attracts also attracts other people to faith in Jesus Christ through the united outward expression of transformed hearts. And Paul knew that. So he reminds the church in Ephesus and reminds us this morning as well to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Portview and the people of Portview walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So transformed people can establish God's kingdom on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's, there's more. The question is, how does this happen? Well, in verses 2 and 3, Paul spells out the how a little bit better. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, "...with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace." Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. However, the way in which we are to walk worthy of the calling, the how, is incredibly compelling also. 
Paul basically gives a list of church character traits that he goes through. And this would be a great, um, a great, a great thing for us to look at, both personally but also in a church. So let's take a look at those. He talks about humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love, making sure you do what? He says, making sure you preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why does Paul give this list of traits so that the church of Ephesus could exemplify these things? Well, because they help preserve the unity of the Spirit in the church. So let's, let's take a look at each one of these, and we'll kind of do a compare and contrast here and see which of these character traits, the one that Paul describes, really promote unity when we compare them to the exact opposite or the antonyms. Okay, So we start with humility. Humility is simply lowliness of mind. The Bible says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, right? And compare that with the opposite of humility, which would be pride. Pride is viewing of yourself more important than others. And so, which one promotes humility? I'm sorry, which one promotes unity? It's either humility or pride. Well, it's, of course, it's humility. Or what about gentleness? What is gentleness? Well, gentleness is meekness or sensitivity of disposition or maybe a kindness of behavior. And the opposite of gentleness would be harshness, which is cruel and severe. Well, which one of those promotes unity? Well, clearly it's gentleness, right? Or, or patience, to put up with or to, to bear with one another, to endure, to suffer. When you're to be united, you're going to need to be patient, Right? Because the opposite of patience is maybe agitation, where everything gets to you, right? A state of anxiety or nervousness. Well, that doesn't promote unity either. Patience does. And all of this, Paul says, is to be done in love as opposed to hate. Well, which one of those promotes unity? Well, of course, unity is promoted best in love, only in love. So these character traits are good for us as individuals, but also for us as a church. See, these traits give us insight into this timeless principle of the church, which is unity and how to maintain that unity. See, the Spirit of God is a great unifier. He is the great unifier. Division is the opposite of the Spirit of God in the church. Sin is a disruptive force. Sin always divides. It always separates. It always splinters. In fact, it divides people within and against themselves. It has produced the constant fight and struggle, which we are all aware of in our lives. This is the constant problem of good and bad, right and wrong, should I, shouldn't I. Sin also produces division between people. It leads to enmity and war and strife. The world has been completely shattered by sin, which is division. It causes division. However, the central object of salvation, of the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is to unite. And I would say this, to reunite, to bring together again, to restore the unity that existed before sin and before the fall produced this terrible mess that we live in. Paul worked this out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, so it is inevitable that when he comes to the particulars of the Christian walk, the preservation of this unity must be addressed right away. It is absolutely essential. Unity 
is a great thing. It's actually an incredibly beautiful thing. Listen to what, what David says in Psalm 133. He said, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. But what does a unified church look like? Well, we looked at the, the hows. But what might be a good picture on how that would look all together? Well, Paul gives us a few examples of this kind of church and what church unity looks like. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, describes it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, or verses 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship or unity of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. It's phrase after phrase after phrase of unity. Stay together. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Unity. Writing in the book of Colossians, Paul says in Colossians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, he said, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The best example, though, of a unified church, I would say, is in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Listen to how Paul describes a unified church. He said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place throughout the apostles or through the apostles. And all those who had believed were all together and had all things in common. Unity. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone had need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a great picture of unity in the church. Listen to those phrases of unity that Paul that are described in, in Acts. It says, "We're together and had all things in common." They were with one mind. What a great picture of how the church should function all around the world and how God intends the people of Portview Church and our church to function. The transformed people, united under the rule of Christ, work together to establish His kingdom on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. However, as we look at the church of Jesus Christ today, especially the church of Jesus Christ around the world, it doesn't always reflect what we just read in Acts chapter 2, does it? We could all think of examples of churches around the world or churches close by where disunity has reigned. The church in a lot of ways can be just as divisive as the, as the world we've been called to reach, right? In John 13:35 it says Jesus is saying by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If this is true then a lack of love and unity toward one another in the church will show the watching world that we are not disciples of Jesus, wouldn't it? And unfortunately 
This is what many people have seen. Disunity in the Spirit is the number one way that any church across the world collapses. It's disunity. In the church world, if we disagree on something, it's not all that uncommon that we divide. If we don't like something, we leave. If we have a different viewpoint, we won't talk to that person. Some people who consider themselves part of the church won't unite with someone else unless they look, act, speak, dress, are the same age and raise their kids the same as I do. If we have doctrinal, a doctrinal nuance in the church, we start a different denomination. Do you know that there are thousands and thousands of Protestant denominations around the world? Thousands. And they're all Protestant. It hasn't seemed to increase the effectiveness that this division hasn't seemed to increase the effectiveness of the church in America. In fact, I believe it's greatly decreased the impact of our culture. And what I'm trying to communicate to us in just that little snippet of this whole idea of love and unity, that they will know that you are my disciples for the love that you have for one another, is maybe help us recognize that in the church world, it seems like that we're quicker to divide than we are to unite. And I'm just wondering, is that God's plan? I don't think it is. I don't think it is. We try to do a very good job as a church to unite with the other churches in our community, to work together, to raise, to elevate the spiritual condition and the spiritual health of our community. And we love doing that. And, with all, and that is all good, and that's a good thing. However, with that being said, when we talk about unity in the church, a lot of times that's what we go to. But what Paul is talking about here is something way more foundational type of unity than I just described. Usually when we think of unity, we think of it like this. Let's work together better, right? And as Christians, we should be able to work together better. But Paul is not just appealing for some general spirit of friendship or brotherliness or camaraderie. Neither is he appealing only for some common aim or a series of common aims against something which is a common enemy, which is another great way uh, that unity in the world happens. We say, I don't like that, you don't like that too, well, let's not like that together, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. All these things are all very kind of vague and nebulous. The Apostle Paul is not saying, and this is key, what he is not saying is don't be too particular in regard to what we believe. And this is incredibly important that you don't give up the right thinking and the right theology in the name of unity, because that right thinking and that right theology that Paul has spelled out is actually what unites us. So you can't reject what is to unite us in order to unite. That doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't work that way. The unity that Paul is speaking of is a unity that results directly from all he has been saying in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So if someone comes to you and says, it doesn't matter much what you believe, if we all call ourselves Christians, or if we believe in God in any sense, let's all work together. Then you should say, but what about chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians? Continue by saying, I don't know of any unity other than the great doctrines and beliefs which the Apostle Paul lays out in those chapters. That is absolutely essential. That's why he wrote that first, and then goes on to talk about unity. You need to know what you're uniting under 
before you can unite. Otherwise, it's just a feel-good session. Whatever this unity may be, we need to say that it must be theological, it must be doctrinal, it must be based upon an understanding of the truth of Scripture. The unity we are talking about is only produced by the Holy Spirit himself. Humanity cannot produce it. He alone can create this unity. What Paul is asking us to do is to be careful not to break the unity that is already there and which has been produced and created by the Spirit himself. We are to maintain it, not create it. We can't create it. It is the unity of the Spirit. It is his work. It is something that he does in us. In his, in his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer gives a great word picture of what this idea of unity looks like. Listen to this. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each than other, to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And that's just an incredible picture of, of what Paul's describing here, of what this unity looks like. We are the most united when we look to Christ. We are the most united when we understand his teachings, his doctrine, his theology. Let me explain the idea of unity in the church in one last way. I want to take a step back and look at this concept of unity from a big picture. The gospel message woven throughout Scripture has this concept of unity at its core. And some of you this may sound very familiar, and let's view it in the light of unity. See, in the beginning, God created us to be with Him, right? He created this perfect unity of God and humanity together. There was nothing that separated that's how he created it. In fact, Adam and Eve, for a while, had the perfect marriage. He created unity between, between man and woman. And, and it was awesome. That's how he intended things to be. But what happened? Well, the great divider came in. Satan and sin, which is the division. Our sin separates us from God. Sin divides us. And this was not God's plan. That's not how he set things up. So this sin that divided came in and we have spent some time in humanity, we try to, to do good things. We try to bring back that unity ourselves, but we understand that we can't create it, that our sins separate us from God and sin cannot be removed by good deeds. We cannot recreate the perfect intended unity, only God can. So what did God do in order to bring that unity back together? Well, he sent Jesus Christ. And paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And he came to restore and reestablish that unity because only he could. We can't create that of ourselves. And the unifying message of Jesus Christ is this, that everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. This restoration of unity is available to everyone. It's all-inclusive. Not as we want it to be, not as something that we create, but only, 
under the lordship and direction and doctrine and theology of Jesus Christ himself. And that, but everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And that we get to live as Christians a life with Jesus that starts that day of salvation and lasts forever. See, as followers of Jesus, we get to experience this unity in many ways here on earth. Although this unity hasn't reached perfection again quite yet, we get to experience it. And one of the ways that we get to experience it is in the church. God's main, one of the main avenues of the church is to show and experience the unity that Jesus Christ, that God himself intended to have and have his believers have. Does that make sense? So they will know that you are Christians by your love one for another. They will see the unity of the Spirit in the church and see God through that and want and, and desire to be a part. As followers of Jesus, we get to experience that in different ways here on earth and eventually the unity that God intended will be fully restored when he returns for his church. God told us that he will recreate an absolute perfect unity exactly how he intended things to be. And I can't wait for that day. But you know what? Until then, God wants us to do everything that we can to come under his lordship so that we can together experience a taste of that unity. Paul says, I'll see through a glass dimly. That means we don't get the full picture of the entirety of his unity that he intended for us quite yet. But, we, but eventually we'll be able to see face to face. Eventually we'll be able to see and experience that unity that he intended, the perfect unity with, between man and God, the perfect unity between people that it was supposed to be and how he intended it to be one day. And that is a message of hope. Our unity, the unity of the church, should promote hope to a world that is divided. The unity of the church should be absolutely contagious to everyone that we run into. And my question for us this morning is, are you promoting unity? Am I promoting unity in the church? And are we promoting unity at Portview Church? In fact, not, not just promoting, because you can be on the sideline and cheer it on, but are you fighting to maintain the unity of the spirit that Paul is describing? When someone comes and complains to us about something going on, do you, do you listen or do you refuse to participate, correcting them if necessary? Do you fight for unity? See, unity is not appeasement, but it promotes peace. Unity of the spirit is not sitting around singing kumbaya. It's the absolute, unapologetic commitment to the scriptures. Unity is not just a good idea. It is absolutely essential in the core of the church that Jesus Christ himself set up. And God needs us to be constantly fighting to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Dads, are you fighting for the unity of the Spirit in your home? Be unrelenting. Have the tough conversations with your kids. Take the time to address the issues. Fight for your marriages. Maintain the unity in the spirit that God intended there to be. People of Portview Church, stand for the cause of unity above the temptations of gossip or complaining. Pray for the church actively and for the church leadership. We need it. Commit to regular attendance and serving and see how God will use this united church to impact Port Washington and see how this will impact the communities all around us. That's why Paul addresses unity right away. 
It is absolutely essential. Personally, allow God to transform your heart. Submit to the complete rule of Christ in your life, not just in certain areas of your life, but your entire life. Make establishing the kingdom of God your main goal in life and watch the power of the Holy Spirit watch what He will do through you and through this church. Because transformed people, united under the rule of Christ, work together to establish His kingdom on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what God has called the church to. He has called each one of us as individuals to come together and show this unity to a world. Unity... This is really God's plan, and that's a plan worth fighting for. Wouldn't you agree? So will we as a church work tirelessly towards unity? Will we choose to believe the best of each other? Will we understand that we're all a work in progress and realize that perfection has not been reached by any one of us and not allow the temptations and the sin of this world to come in and cause division where God looks to bring unity. If we choose to do that, do that, I promise you, you will see the effects and the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives and in the lives of this community, people in this community. And it will be absolutely incredible. But it cannot happen apart from unity. Would you please stand with me this morning? You know, there's one very real element of unity that we can't overlook. Some of you in this room may have a hard time with the unity that I was talking about because maybe you've never committed to being a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you've never brought your life under the rule of Jesus Christ. And it's very clear that the unity that we spoke of today can't be done apart from that personal relationship with Jesus. So as we bow our heads and close our eyes with no one looking around, maybe some of you in here are sensing something in your heart which is the Spirit of God drawing you to Himself. And what He offers you today is the opportunity to join everyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life. To start this life with Jesus where perfection is not reached, but opportunities to experience the unity that I described are available. That through a transformed heart that only God can do, somehow we get grafted into the church of Jesus Christ. And this unity that we've been talking about today can be experienced. If that's you this morning, would you just please slip up your hand? No one else looking around. It's just between you, me, and God. I want to pray for you this morning. God, we just want to thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you call us to such incredible unity and Lord it makes sense that it's something we couldn't create Lord knows we've tried throughout thousands of years of human history we have tried to recreate the unity that is only found in the church of Jesus Christ and God I thank you for that unity 
And thank, thank you, God, that you loved us enough that you sent Jesus to bring that unity back. Lord, that we have access to perfect unity again only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God, for that, we just say thank you. But Lord, this unity is not to be lived out individually. Lord, it's to be lived out corporately in the church body. And so I pray for Portview Church. I pray that in the name of Jesus, the spirit of unity would thrive here. Lord, that there would be just a bond of peace that is created by the Spirit because individuals are allowing God to transform their hearts. And God, I believe that that's your plan. And Lord, we have seen it take place. We could go around in the sanctuary and and people can raise their hands and tell stories of the transformation that God has done in their lives. And Lord, it has promoted unity in this church. Lord, I believe there are people in this building because of the unity of the Spirit that was seen and experienced. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue the work in each one of us that you've set out to do. And that, Lord, when we come together, or even when we go out for the week, that that unity of the Spirit, God, would be so evident in our lives. Lord, that we would earnestly pray for one another out of that unity. Lord, that we would, that we would connect with and, and be with each other out of that love and unity that has been developed. Lord, I pray that we would go out and reach a dying world because of the unity, God, and the love that you've put in our hearts. That's only something you can do. So God, thank you for choosing to use imperfect people to somehow reflect your perfect unity. And we acknowledge our need for you this morning. In Jesus' name.